Let's return to 1 Timothy. We have begun our study a few weeks ago in this first epistle of Paul to Timothy. We are going to continue, um, not only through 1 Timothy, but through the other pastoral epistles as well. We come this morning to verses 18 through 20 as we conclude this first chapter of 1 Timothy. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Father, thank you again for your word. It is our authority. Speak that we may hear. In Christ's name, amen. The Apostle Paul, as you may know, has a lot to say in his writings about spiritual warfare. He understood the reality of spiritual warfare, and he understood that when he left Timothy in Ephesus to shepherd the church in that city, Timothy would be involved in spiritual warfare. And Paul did not want Timothy to go into battle unprepared. And so he orders his young disciple to prepare for spiritual combat, commanding him to fight the good fight. And of course, Paul is speaking to Timothy as his father in the faith, but also as a general to his officers. This command I entrust to you, Timothy. These are Timothy's marching orders as he engages in spiritual warfare there in the city of Ephesus. His orders, Paul says, are in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you might fight the good fight. And as soon as we read that, we want to know more, don't we? What are these prophecies that Paul is speaking about? What was this prophecy concerning Timothy? Most likely... Paul was referring to something that happened at Timothy's ordination, an event he mentions more than once. Later, we will learn that Timothy was given a spiritual gift by prophecy at the time of his ordination. Now, you hear that term, ordination, and we kind of have this idea in our mind, some you know, grand kind of coronation. An ordination is simply the church recognizing that God has called someone to ministry within that church. It's the recognition that God has raised up an elder or raised up a deacon. So don't get in your mind right this, this grand ceremony with all kinds of pomp and robes and so forth. Most likely, you had some other elders gathering around Timothy, laying hands upon him, 
and praying for Him as He is set apart for ministry. In any case, it's not necessary for us to know the content of this prophetic message. Otherwise, God would have included it in His Word. And He doesn't. What we do know is that Timothy's call to the ministry was affirmed by a prophetic word. So what we know about Timothy thus far is that he had the confidence of Paul, the endorsement of the church, and the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Timothy was a man set apart. So Timothy is ordered here to fight the good fight, which raises an obvious question, what's the good fight? The expression itself implies that some fights are not good. Throughout this epistle, Timothy is repeatedly warned against the dangers of needless warfare. He's told to stay away from issues that do nothing but promote controversy. He's told that elders like himself must not be quarrelsome. He's told that anyone who has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words is a false teacher. A fight over doctrine is not essential to the Christian faith. All the time. Listen when I speak. Especially when I sound like that. What choice do you have? Not every fight is worth fighting. Every biblical truth needs to be taught, discussed, believed, and practiced. But not everybody, every biblical truth needs to be argued for in every situation. And no biblical truth should ever be defended with a contentious spirit. Some fights are not worth fighting. Some wars are not worth waging. Some battles are not worth contesting. But how does one tell the difference between a good fight and a bad fight? Here are a few things to think about. A few questions to ask. Will it matter a year from now? If it won't matter then, it probably doesn't matter much now. Am I enjoying the dispute in some perverse way? If so, maybe you're fighting for the wrong reasons. Am I fighting for myself or for others? It's one thing to defend someone's, someone else's spiritual interests or the glory of God Himself. It's very different to be looking out for yourself, defending yourself. There's a quote that I've repeated many times. It comes from Augustine in his Confessions and has always stayed with me from the very first time I came across it in which he's, he's praying. And he says, Lord, deliver me from the lust of vindicating myself. If it's all about me, it's not worth fighting about. Do I find myself trying to justify my actions either to myself or to others. We do that, don't we? Sometimes we fight with ourselves. We try to justify ourselves to ourselves 
We want to rationalize things. I want to do this, but I've got to come up with some way of doing it that is going to ease my conscience. And sometimes, of course, we want to justify ourselves to others. We want others to think well of us, and think we're doing things for the right reasons. Sometimes some, something really worth fighting about is too obvious to require very much explanation. If there's something that is worth fighting about, you don't have to explain why you're fighting. It should be obvious that this is of such importance and of such a level that yes, of course, we're going to have contention about this. There are plenty of bad fights, but there's only one good fight. Notice, Paul calls it the good fight, not a good fight. Fight the good fight. The warfare that he has in mind is the defense of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. The good fight is the fight for sound doctrine, sound theology. So when Paul proceeds to talk about keeping faith and a good conscience in verse 19, he draws an explicit contrast with false teachers. False teachers, as he described back in verse 5, who have let go of a good conscience and sincere faith. When Paul speaks of Timothy's opponents, he describes them as having made shipwreck. And for some reason, both the ESV and the New American Standard translate that phrase as making shipwreck of their faith. Suffering shipwreck in regard to their faith. But that's not what Paul's saying. It's true But that's not Paul's focus. How you should read this, and if you have a New American Standard at least, it's there in the margin. It should have been brought over into the text. They have suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. In regard to Christianity. In regard to that content of truth, which is the faith. And he'll return to this theme at the end of the letter when he repeats Timothy's marching orders. There he tells Timothy once again, fight the good fight of the faith. The good fight then is the struggle to defend those doctrines which are essential to the Christian faith. Doctrines like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the necessity of atonement for sin, the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross, the efficacy of faith alone for justification, and the infallibility of the Scripture. Such truths are well worth fighting for. In fact, we are commanded to defend them. The people of God have never been able to simply rest in the faith. We have always had to fight for it. From the very beginning, Men like those Paul is describing here have sought to make their way into the church to lead God's people astray. The people of God have never been able to rest. There is always that battle going on. It began in the Old Testament. By the time Moses came down from the mountain, the children of Israel were already worshiping the golden calf. 
Joshua had to confront them with the choice between serving the true God and serving false gods. Elijah was outnumbered by the prophets of Baal 450 to 1. Like Ezekiel, the prophets of God had to oppose the false prophets who see false visions and give lying divinations. The warfare was resumed in the New Testament. Jesus' teaching often stood in contradiction to the false theology of the Pharisees. Every New Testament epistle is concerned with sound doctrine. Apparently, there were as many enemies inside the church as there were outside the church. And Paul was constantly warning the church and warning elders about the danger of wolves coming in to devour God's people. There's a reason why Jude commands us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The subsequent history of the church is largely a study in doctrinal confrontation. First, the church had to defend the doctrine of the Trinity settled by the Council of Nicaea. The church had to defend the sovereignty of God's grace against the man-centered doctrines of Pelagius. All the while, there are arguments taking place over the deity of Christ, which are gradually settled by the councils of Constantinople and Ephesus and Chalcedon. In the Middle Ages, the way of salvation came under attack. Eventually, because of doctrinal error, it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to reform the church. Scripture had to be defended as the sole standard of faith and practice. Sola Scriptura. Christ had to be defended as the sole mediator between God and man, solus Christus. Faith had to be defended as the sole instrument of justification, sole fide. Grace had to be defended as the sole power of God in salvation, sola gratia. And all of these doctrines had to be defended in order to promote the greater glory of of God, who alone is worthy of praise. Soli Deo Gloria. The good fight continues. Up into the 20th century, there was the good fight against theological liberalism fought by J. Gresham Machen and others. It was a fight between Christianity as a supernatural religion and Christianity which explained away all of that and transformed itself into a purely human experience. Today, in the 21st century, the fight goes on within the evangelical church as all too often those churches which were at one time faithful to the Scripture and the Gospel are doing all they can not to be separate from the world, but to be loved by the world. The point of this brief sketch of church history is to demonstrate that there has never been a time when God's people were not in danger of falling into error. What Paul tells to Timothy, he says to us as well, fight the good fight. God's people are given a commission not only to take the Gospel, but to maintain the faith once delivered to the saints. 
The history of the church confirms the necessity of Paul's charge to Timothy. Until Christ returns, the people of God are going to be engaged in spiritual warfare. A perpetual war. We hear this spoken of quite often, don't we, in the political realm. Boy, you know, it seems like we're in perpetual war. Our leaders are always leading us into one conflict or another. The spiritual reality is that the church of Jesus Christ is always at war. The Christian faith always needs to be defended, not only from blatant paganism, but from the heresy that rises up within the church. Whereas persecution often ends up by helping the church and advancing the gospel, heresy always harms the church and hurts its ministry in the world. God's people long for peace. We want there to be peace. And that's a good desire. Our Lord prayed that His people would be united with Him and with the Father and with one another. However, anyone who believes that doctrinal unity can be achieved without a struggle does not understand what both Jesus and the apostles clearly predicted. And yet, in spite of this common theme running all through the Scripture, we still hear people so often saying, doctrine. Doctrine's the problem. We ought to focus on mission and not theology. Theology is what divides us. Let's get out there and do. Of course, without doctrine, we don't know what to do. Doctrine is the foundation for what we do. You have others saying silly things like, I have no creed but Jesus. And as soon as one says that, of course, they immediately have to explain who Jesus is and what He's done and what difference it makes. And as soon as you have to do that, where are you? You're in doctrine. We've got to be biblical realists. Biblical realism warns us against any form of naive ecumenism. There is an inevitable and perpetual warfare between truth and error. And since an elder like Timothy is, to, is called to be a warrior, Timothy needed to brace himself for the fight. And so do we. So what is our good fight? What battles are being waged, need to be waged? I think one of the key battles that continues to be fought and needs to be fought is the fight for biblical authority, biblical inerrancy, biblical sufficiency, The evangelical church seemed to have won this battle for the Bible back in the 70s and 80s when men like James Boyce and Francis Schaeffer and others fought that battle. And yet today, 
we see that these battles have to be fought over and over and over again. Members of the Evangelical Theological Society affirm every year that the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is the Word of God written and is therefore inerrant in the autographs. And yet, students and teachers in evangelical churches and seminaries, many of which sign that statement, redefine it in their minds to agree with a more loosely orthodox doctrine of Scripture. In some cases, drawing the spurious distinction between inerrancy and infallibility, as if you could have an infallible Bible that was not inerrant. Or else advocating interpretations that call, in, that call biblical authority into question. There still needs to be a defense of the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God. There is also continuing to be a battle for the doctrine of salvation through Christ alone. This is something that has raged for centuries and continues. There is what some are calling post-conservative evangelicalism which is increasingly open to the idea that Jesus Christ is not the only way of salvation. He's a way, but not the way. Meanwhile, you have others de-emphasizing the necessity of atonement. And confessing evangelicals must continue to defend the truth that Paul teaches in the very next chapter, that there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. There is a good fight being waged for the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. The Bible teaches that sinners are declared righteous in the sight of God, not on the basis of their own righteousness, but solely on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed to them by faith. But for the past 30 years, so-called evangelicals have been seeking to water down that great gospel for the sake of unity, arguing that the cause of the Reformation really was just a matter of semantics. We were just hearing each other differently, but really saying the same thing. Of course, if that's true, we would wish that there was someone around in the 16th century to tell the Pope and the Reformers. Many would have been spared the ordeal of being burned at the stake if only someone would have recognized that it's all just a matter of words. But it wasn't. It wasn't just a misunderstanding. Brilliant men on both sides understood the reality of the division, and it is a division which still exists today. In short, the battles that the church must wage in the 21st century are battles it has always had to wage. They center on questions like, what is the Word of God? Who is Jesus Christ? What is the way of salvation? The enemies of sound doctrine will not simply run away, they must be driven away. The good fight for the Christian faith must always be waged. 
The good fight is simply not a matter of faith. It is also a matter of practice. Paul charges Timothy in verse 19 to hold on to faith and a good conscience. Keep faith and a good conscience. Given the military context, Timothy must arm himself with faith and a good conscience. Since a good conscience comes from a good life, Timothy must practice what he preaches. The Christian life is as important as Christian faith. And the defense of sound doctrine is also a defense of sound practice. Throughout the Scripture, the apostles connect these things. When one drifts away in doctrine, one drifts away in practice. False doctrine and immorality go together. These two virtues, there in verse 19, faith and a good conscience, are joined together three times in this epistle alone. They belong together. Faith, good conscience. Faith, practice. Obviously, false doctrine leads to moral failure. Wrong views about God's Word will inevitably, inevitably lead to wrong practices. But the reverse is also true. A bad conscience often leads to bad doctrine. Because of something we mentioned earlier today, we have a tendency to want to rationalize our sin. How do I do that? When I want to sin, but the Scripture clearly says, this is sin, I need to come back and change my doctrine. Change my understanding so that I can sin in good conscience. And if someone calls me out, I can defend it. Or at least seem to. Calvin went so far as to say that a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. People often try to justify their sin. And when they do, their bad behavior leads to false doctrine. Paul Johnson, uh, the late British historian, has shown how this happens in the world of ideas. His book, The Intellectuals, shows that many of the leading modern thinkers led private lives that were grossly immoral. In part, the philosophies of Karl Marx and Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre, others, were attempts to justify their own sinful behavior. When you go back now and you read these philosophers, knowing what their lives were like and what their lives had become, it is not difficult to make those connections. Faith and conscience always belong together, but especially in the life of an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. Nothing destroys a ministry more completely than immorality. The Christian faith is not simply to be defended, but to be lived. Now what happens when Christians let go of their faith and their good conscience? Paul ends his charge to Timothy by getting very specific and giving two tragic examples of men whose immorality was, sh was the shipwreck of their 
faith. Paul, as we know, never hesitated to name names. And here, he names two. Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he assumes Timothy knew who they were. These men seemingly were notorious in the Ephesian church. Hymenaeus is mentioned again in Paul's second letter to Timothy, where he says that Hymenaeus and Philetus have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. What Paul says about these two men is that by rejecting faith and a good conscience, they have made shipwreck of the faith. The faith. Their apostasy has brought disrepute upon the faith. They have shipwrecked themselves. That much is true as well. But they have also brought shipwreck to the faith. When seemingly faithful men Go haywire. What happens? The disrepute they bring upon themselves is by the world transferred to the church. The world says, here's yet another opportunity to to besmirch the name of Christ and His people. Look, they're all like that. By calling their theological position, as Paul does, a rejection, Scripture makes it clear that these men made a deliberate and conscious choice to repudiate the Christian faith. Now, if you had spoken to these men, they wouldn't have said it. They would have claimed to have still been Christians. But Paul says, by denying the resurrection or claiming that it has already happened, these people have put themselves outside of the church. They have made shipwreck. They foundered on the shoals of false false doctrine. Their testimony turned into the Titanic. Everybody, eventually their, their, their own teaching became blasphemous, verse 20 says. Paul says, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. See how everything hangs together. They're they're claiming, at least Hymenaeus is, that the resurrection has already happened. That's one issue. But it doesn't stand alone. It's not an isolation. False teaching never is an isolation. Paul says the result of their Shipwreck is also that they blaspheme and they need to be taught not to. Paul says that he's handed them over to Satan. How are we to understand this? Hymenaeus and Alexander seem to have lost their faith. What does that say about the doctrine of perseverance? If they have lost their faith, how can anyone be sure of salvation? 
Well, one way of handling this difficulty is to point out that Hymenaeus and Alexander did not shipwreck their faith, but the faith. Scripture never claims these men to have had a saving faith in the first place. If they did not, it's no wonder that they hit an iceberg somewhere along the line. Perhaps then their example shows how far people can go in the Christian faith without ever trusting Christ in the first place. That may be what's going on here. That's what's happening in Hebrews chapter 6, for instance. But another way of understanding this is to recognize that Paul has not given up on Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul believes there is still hope for them. He knew that it is sometimes possible to survive a shipwreck. Paul did it himself three times. He had survived literal shipwrecks. And Paul still has hope that Hymenaeus and Alexander might survive this spiritual shipwreck. It's also worth noticing that the sin these men committed, that Paul mentions here specifically, namely blasphemy, is one of Paul's former sins. Paul knew what it was to be forgiven for blasphemy. All of this helps explain why Paul doesn't just write them off, but he hands them over to Satan so that they will be taught. There's the hope. There's the hope. When someone goes astray, we don't write them off. We continue to pursue them in the hope that they will repent, in the hope that they will turn. Church discipline is what Paul's talking about here. Also speaks of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, he speaks of that one that he is addressing there, the one who had fallen into sin at the Corinthian church. And he says about that man, I have turned him over to Satan. Now church discipline includes everything Jesus described in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Just to summarize this process, if a church member has fallen into scandalous sin, one of his Christian brothers or sisters is to go to him and correct him privately. If your brother sins against you, Jesus says, and some translations are just sin, I think the more general understanding is, is correct. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Nobody else has to know. And hopefully that resolves the problem. If your brother is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then we're trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to convict that one of sin. And Jesus goes on to say then, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The matter is settled. It stops there. Nobody else knows about it. This person has been reconciled. However, Jesus goes on to say, if he refuses to listen, then take a witness and continue to plead with him to turn from his sin. But if he does not listen, take two or three others along with you, Jesus says, that every charge may be established 
by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Not witnesses to the sin, but witnesses to the attempt to restore. And only if all else fails is the matter brought to the attention of God's people. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And in the end, a church member who refuses to repent is to be put out of the church. Jesus says in Matthew 18, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is what we call excommunication. And it sounds harsh, doesn't it? Until you ask the question, how do we treat tax collectors? How do we treat sinners? How do we treat, from the immediate context, Gentiles? We love them. We share the Gospel with them. We seek to introduce them to Christ and the grace of God. That's the desire. Church discipline isn't about shunning people. It's about restoring people. It's about loving people back into fellowship with God and the church. This is what we call excommunication. That one is not only removed from the fellowship of the church, but Paul, as he describes it here, says this one is handed over to Satan. He is removed from God's care. I want you to understand, this is an explanation to us of how serious sin is. That Paul would be willing, for the sake of the one caught in sin, to hand him over to Satan so that he might be restored. The decision is a warning about how dangerous it is to be caught outside of the church of Jesus Christ. It's instructive to remember how much Job suffered when he was handed over to Satan. Or to remember the Corinthians who fell sick because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. Hymenaeus and Alexander were exposed to similar dangers when they were handed over to Satan. And the details are not given, but presumably Paul followed the biblical procedure. These men were then denied Christian fellowship. They were no longer considered to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. For them to return to fellowship with Christ and His church, they would need to be evangelized all over again. And here's what we've got to understand. All of this was done for the spiritual benefit of Hymenaeus and Alexander themselves. As Augustine observed, Paul was trying to correct evil men by means of the evil one. He excommunicated them so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. And that's a positive term. To be taught That's a good thing. We want to be taught, don't we? It's a bad thing to resist teaching. Scripture speaks about those who are unteachable, and that's always a negative thing. 
We want to be taught. We want to be instructed. We want to be trained. We want to be corrected. And although by the time he writes 2 Timothy, he seems more pessimistic, at this point, Paul is hoping and praying that they will make it back to port after their shipwreck. The goal of discipline is always restoration. It's not intended to harm, it's intended to heal. When it's used properly, church discipline maintains the glory of God and the purity of the church and the keeping and reclaiming of disobedient sinners. And we have seen it happen here. And when it does, we rejoice. There is always the danger that spiritual authority may be abused. But the contemporary church errs in the opposite direction. Christians are so afraid of offending anyone that they rarely warn someone away from sin. Church discipline needs to be restored to its rightful and helpful place in the church because it's not man's idea, it's God's idea. And God knows what is best for His people and for His church. Calvin explained its proper function well. He said, since it is in the church that Christ holds the seat of His kingdom, outside the church there is nothing but the dominion of Satan. Thus he who is cut off from the church must necessarily fall for a time under Satan's tyranny till he is reconciled to the church and returns to Christ. And one of the most sobering aspects of the ministry is that sometimes this needs to be done. Ministry is not easy but warfare never is. Christians must never forget that we are soldiers. We are engaged in battle. Paul stayed in that battle until the end of his life. By the end of his second letter to Timothy, he can write this, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. And how wonderful it will be to make it to the end, avoiding shipwreck and in good conscience be able to proclaim with Paul and Timothy, I have fought the good fight. Father, may it be so. May we make it to the end with a good conscience, having kept the faith. And in that way, Father, may You be glorified in Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.